I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Ryan Skavnicki, who's been described as the godfather of the architecture meme. Ryan's also an educator, architectural theorist, and founder of the practice Extra Office. While Skavnicki is trained as an architect, he's primarily interested not in architecture as a physical object, but in the ever-expanding forms of media through which it's represented. Based in Akron, Ohio, he teaches a course at Kent State University called Theory and Criticism in Architectural Media, and he's really a creature of the internet, where he's very active on platforms like TikTok, Twitch, and of course, Instagram, using these venues as a means for teasing out new architectural ideas and critiques. I strongly recommend you watch his Twitch feed where he records himself playing various video games, performing a kind of spatial critique that's both insightful and often hilarious. Ryan and I recorded our conversation in mid-January 2022, where we talked about, among other things, the potential for meme culture to upend traditional hierarchies to form a new value system that encourages a more inclusive dialogue around architecture, defined as much by its critical rigor as its sense of humor. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. The reason I was so interested in talking with you is because it seems like we're at a unique crossroads right now in terms of what it means to be an architecture critic. And what I'm curious about is how this is overlapping with the role of the social media influencer and the content producer, because to me, you are all of these things. And I wondered if we could start with, I guess, your time at the University of Cincinnati. And you know, following that, your transition to SciArc and the postgraduate program there in design theory and pedagogy. So can you walk me through, I guess, what kind of aspirations you had coming out of your undergrad degree? And then what pulled you towards the SciArc program and away from a more conventional practice? I think that it sort of really frustrated me to see most architecture schools and institutions taking to social media in such a bland um, kind of performative way to try to still be telling the same stories through a different medium. And I think that if I bring anything with me into new media, it's that um, we need different stories. I, I don't want to be telling the same stories about me's and uh, you know, about Gropius or whatever, I, I want to be finding new pathways for architecture to um, spark people's interest, mm -hmm. um, new reasons to engage it. And because I don't think 
I don't think we can. I think we have to leave some things behind um, as a as an as a discipline. That doesn't mean like forget everything. That means like things need to become history and stop need, needing to to try to continue to be um, contemporary, especially mm -hmm. today. Um, I mean, with your work, it seems like it's as much about finding new mediums to tell stories as it is about telling new stories themselves. But and for example, I mean, you you you're as quick to produce a critique of a, a video game, whether it's Fortnite or Zelda or Control or Grand Theft Auto. You have a Twitch account where you're very energetically uh, involved in very in-depth analysis of architectural space in video games like that. But also, of course, um, the memes you make on Instagram themselves are their own kind of medium for telling different stories about architecture. But I mean, if we're talking about storytelling and history and the narrative of the practice and the culture of architecture, what what is the story you're trying to tell now? It's a great question. And maybe it's too broad a question. Maybe the question should be more, maybe we'll kind of arrive at that question sure, further down sure. the line. But I guess there's a, there sounds like there's a um, dissatisfaction or frustration with the way maybe in your education people were thinking about architecture and its history and its significance, um, uh, irrelevance to daily life. And it seems like part of this move from um, Cincinnati into Sark had to do with learning about different ways of thinking about architecture and teaching architecture. So maybe we could start or focus on that and you could talk more about the agenda you had going into the Sark program and what you came out of it with. I mean, Sark is a place that writes its own history, right? It, um, clearly needed to be the place to go to to think about new media and research topics because i i have a i have a problem okay my problem is that every time i find a new medium um i misbehave in it i don't like to produce stuff with the intention of growth on any kind of channel I typically like to try and under undermine the kind of way that media is fed through that particular channel. So for in, for example, on Instagram, memes are the kind of they 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 slowly get more and more kind of uh, brought into a mainstream, right? But they were, they were very, they, they misbehave on that channel really, really well. They, they have text in the image instead of in the caption, right? They, they are really poor quality. They, they don't look pleasing. They, um, upset your, they, they upset your, your feeds aesthetic potential. Right. Um, and I think a place like SciArc has the tools to to really think about those problems and think about how not only do you use a tool um, for communication, but how you kind of break a tool and learn from it in a new way. And I think that um, that place 
for experimentation. It, that space for experimentation is always there at that school. And it's what led me to kind of not only think about architecture and teaching architecture on those channels, but how to how to work through mediums in such a way as to kind of upset their channels. Now that's something I'm working on being better at um, in the production of media and the future of my practice is one that I want to focus on um, producing media with the intention of a kind of sustainable media output growth pattern, um, more typical of a, more typical of a kind of a, a media production, <laughs> uh, and, uh, which is which is on its way. But the the yeah, does that? I think so. Yeah, I kind of want to I want to go back and chew a little more on what you've said. Um, I guess starting with this. Uh, critique or frustration around the the standardized ways in which media is used. And if we're talking about Instagram, the moment in time that you started to make memes, um, the most popular accounts that were about architecture tended to be ones that would repost uh, portfolio material or slick renderings or contemporary architectural projects um, in this endless bid for aesthetic pleasure and satisfaction and popularity. And also, we're probably in this period of the rise of the, the portfolio on Instagram as well, where everything is considered in each post, is kind of mapped onto a nine square grid to say something more about the, in a very controlled way about the, the user of the account. And so you're coming into this context, really trying to stir, store things and upset things and m make imagery that's dirty and confusing and erratic. Um, and to me, that that kind of irreverence and that attraction to kind of anti-establishment um, way of thinking about architectural culture does seem to have a home in Cyarch as well as an institution. Um, and I just, I mean, further to that point, I saw a lecture that you gave there um, where you're talking about or making analogies between SpongeBob SquarePants and object-oriented ontology. And it felt like a 10-minute extended Instagram meme. Like if, you, if a meme became a public lecture, that's what it would look like. <laughs> and I could tell that you're taking a lot of pleasure in standing up there and doing that kind of performance as well. You're doing something that uh, on the face of it seemed gleefully irresponsible and inappropriate. Mm. Um, and yet was also um, fascinating and making your audience think differently about, in this case, a pretty obtuse and hard to understand philosophical term. Sure, sure. I, I, I take a lot from uh, Hito Sterl's uh, Defense of the Poor Image, which was a, a piece of writing essentially mapping out ideas and techniques for how low quality, low res images are how you kind of become disruptive on these channels. I, I thought that when I graduated from Cincinnati, I spent a good six months 
hashtagging every drawing I was making with what was it at the time? Super Architects and Arc Daily and uh, just everybody and just constantly trying to become a part of that system or that group. But I think that the more I looked into it, the more the obsession over perfection, the more the nine square, the more the kind of really polished architectural drawing fetish became for me a thing that was so clearly disciplined into people that we are willing to, we are not only willing, but like very willing to sort of fight for as like, this is the architect, right? Uh, this sort of extremely clean and neat um, aesthetic producing object um, with drawings and very clean lines. And I just, I don't think that's, a realistic way of operating in contemporary space. I, I know that that's not extremely clear, um, but I just I think there's a particular person who can do that. But I, but I don't see the I don't see a reason to continue that as the only version of the architect that we as a culture, as an architecture culture, are willing to accept. I think mm -hmm. there are there are architects that are messy most architects i meet are very messy they're very, you know uh very like they're they're very their spaces can be very clean but like you know we're thinking about a lot of things we're we're in progress in process all the time um things aren't quite as neat as we like to to uh to pretend they are and so uh and actual architecture making is is a an incredibly sloppy and messy process that is beautiful for that reason um mm -hmm. And I think, does that make sense? Like, I, I think that that type of, of shift is necessary. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, to me, a lot of meme culture has to do with calling out bullshit um, that exists in the way that our thinking has been institutionalized. And it's about somehow untying us from these really restricted or policed or limited ways of understanding the work we do and our, the role we play in the profession we've chosen. Um, and they also have to do with this pursuit for something genuine or something more real in some way. And that's the kind of vibe I get as well from um, the work of yours I've seen online, where there's this really um, unselfconscious um, and um, I'm trying to I'm trying to find other words to frame it. Kind of gleeful delight in whatever it is you've trained your critical eye on, whether it is a video game or uh, an influencer or interior designer's greenwashing of a project, or in one case, I think you're comparing you're comparing like a chalupa with a hamburger, a new hamburger that just came out of Burger King, and then another kind of sandwich from McDonald's. And it's the same, you're taking the same intensity and joy and rigor to these acts of criticism across these vastly different um, levels of culture, whether it's the incredibly lowbrow or the, um, the, the highly complex and theoretical. 
Um, and the meme seems to be a way of bridging all of those tears. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, the, the other thing I was thinking of as you're talking about this like perpetually unfinished state that you see architecture being in is also a certain aesthetic that uh, I've read you've been drawn to as well, even before you became more involved in architectural theory or becoming a, a teacher yourself. And there's a project by a practice called Coup Himmelblau, where you are in Akron right now, the um, Akron Art Museum. Uh, and if anyone listening is familiar with Coup Himmelblau, this is a postmodernist practice from Vienna. And their aesthetic is one of, I don't know, total discord. Like it's um, as kind of chaotic and deconstructed as you can imagine it being. And I know that you were really, you were really drawn to that building in particular as a teenager, right? Yeah. And then you actually went on to work temp briefly for Kuopimoblau in Vienna. Yes. <laughs> there are... There are some things I just can't get out of my head. And I think that it's okay to be, to still, like, like as a critic, I have to say what I love, right? When I was a kid, I was in, when I was interested in architecture, I, I actually grew up in the Cleveland Akron area. And my dad took me to a lecture at the Akron Public Library about art museum architecture. And whoever they were, which I don't know to this day who that person was, but they were talking about new art museums in the United States. And they were talking about Calatrava um, in Milwaukee, which was being designed and constructed, or it was finished. It was close. And then they were talking about um, the Kansas City uh, Art Museum by Stephen Hall. And I believe then they talked about the Cleveland Museum of Art, I'm not entirely sure, but they didn't talk about the Akron Art Museum, which was right across the street. And it was under construction. And I'm looking at this hulking mass of twisted steel. And I'm 16, 17 years old. And I'm like, I, I all I could say to myself is what the fuck is that? Like, what the hell is that thing? Why is that there? How did how did this happen? <laughs> it looks beautiful and wasteful and stupid, and yet I'm drawn to this object in a way that I'm 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 not fully understanding. And so that's why I decided to study architecture. Um, that's why I eventually went to work there um, because I liked the practice and I liked the buildings. Um, funny enough, I ended up getting, um, I ended up renting, uh, my wife and I rented that building when and we got married there. <laughs> so it's a little too, it's still going to get a little too personal, but mm -hmm. like I, it ended up just being a really, really good deal and a really great space. So I was like, all right, sure. I mean, it's not like a, an obsession. It's not like I go there, um, uh, or anything, but it is. Uh, a part of the history of, of what brought me to this moment. Mm. It's interesting, though, because um, in the work you do now, there's a much stronger fixation on the world of images in a virtual space, uh, less so on physical architecture. So can you, can you tell me more about the shift towards the world of media 
and why that was important for you. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I think of theory and I think of theory way more as a practice. And I think of criticism way more as a practice than I do of like this thing that floats around in books. The, the theory is the feed. The theory is the hive mind meme page. The theory is the, um, you know, a TikTok uh, account. I think those are all sort of bona fide methods of the production of contemporary theory. I just, just because it's not written down in log, you know, doesn't make it a, a kind of theoretical um, question. And I gain much more insight to the way that much more insight on the way that people are thinking about space. When I look at the way that regular people might meme about video game spaces or bring video game spaces into their home than I do reading log. Mm -hmm. And just for listeners who might not be familiar, log is a architectural journal published in the US. I mean, I'm thinking about a particular meme I think you made that has, it's a kind of um, rehashing of that standard meme of uh, a line full of people, a queue full of people at one stall and then maybe like one person at the other stall and everyone's lined up to, um, to consume their memes. And there's like one lonely person at the log stall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, in a way that suggests that the meme is superseding the peer-reviewed journal article um, or the monograph, uh, coffee table monograph, or the, I don't know, op-ed in a paper or something. It's like the meme has this gravitational pull um, and sense of significance. At the same time, though, memes are these short, sharp shocks of information and insight that uh, are so short-lived in terms of, in a way, um, our reflection on them. Literally, we scroll very rapidly through this information and are delivered some kind of jolt of dopamine, whether it's to do with um, enjoying the irony of the post or the the schadenfreude or the kind of um, the shit posting or the call-out post or all these things elicit really strong emotions. So how... Like, how do you sustain criticism within an ecosystem of memes? How do you avoid it becoming um, simply scrollable and likable, but ultimately passed over and forgotten? There's a few answers. Um, and it's funny, sorry, one... just the way, the way I'm asking it's like you're this guru of memes, which I know... <laughs> Uh, isn't exactly I mean... the case, but there was this. So just the, like to to kind of maybe contextualize like why I'm asking you in this way. You had posted recently about an article in Architectural Digest. It was a listicle, actually, which was <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, calling you the godfather of the architecture meme or something. Right. So again, like the it's a listicle in a Architectural Digest, but. <laughs> So the stakes aren't super high here, but at the same time, it's it's interesting that in some way um, you're being seen as, uh, if not an early adopter, then some kind of godfather figure in this new culture of, of meme making. 
<laughs> I very, I very much accept the title. Um, <laughs> it is uh, uh, very, um, very cool. I, but, but, but yeah, to go back to the, the question, though. Um, sure. Yeah, about how how real criticism is sustained in the in the medium of the meme. The 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 easy answer is that memes help form a easily digestible thesis of a longer form architecture criticism the the meme is just representative of the kind of um distilled ideas of of any given thing mm -hmm. uh, when it when it becomes sort of shit posting it becomes something that's just sort of repeated out there a a feeling a vibe a thought a prayer a, an, an instinct mm -hmm. that people either agree with feel emote want to speak want to participate in even if they're not the ones saying it it's like how you build momentum around any sort of socially driven changes is first to just sort of build an idea um a feeling and this was actually the situationalists uh, in Paris pre-1968 were building momentum around their causes via graffiti, um, which was no more a critique than a meme is in that they were, uh, you know, ne travaillez jamais, never work, right? A, a, a joke, but a hidden kind of message about labor and the, the kind of silliness of contemporary life that built momentum into a, a very deep um, seated project. Maybe this is a good time to talk more about your own teaching and the kind of ideas you're instilling in uh, the students that you're working with. So you're an adjunct faculty at Kent State University. What are you teaching there? What kind of uh, position are you bringing into the school? What ideas are you trying to uh, engage your students with now? Uh, SciArc is that was the uh, program where that type of thinking about architectural thinking as a as a tool to use to look at any other aspects of the world, not just buildings, was was a place where I kind of learned that as a value, right? Um, I, I learned that as a value. And so I do believe strongly in instilling that value in students, even though, you know, you're at a school where you're really focusing on the being a, produced as an architect, um, keep in mind that there are, I think the AIA did a study about career paths for architects, and there were over a hundred that weren't in architecture about possible career paths. And this was like in the nineties. Um, I was just reading about it and you know, that there are so many other, uh, paths and places where we need architectural thinking and, um, that's kind of a value that I instill. But I want to know what it, what you're actually teaching there. 
Oh, <laughs> well, okay. I teach a second year undergraduate architecture studio where I involve um, video games as a precedent. Uh, so I actually have the students study a, a particular video game and break down its spaces into um, and draw and study the, the, the way that the level presents a place and how it draws your eye and how your character moves through it, how it's, how it's designed for a particular body. Um, and then we use that as the precedent to, to jump off into architecture um, uh, production. And then I teach a course called theory and criticism in architectural media, which is why I, I removed emerging theorist from my Instagram handle and put mm. theorist because if you're teaching theory, you know, I, I think that, I think that, um, the emerging title is, and we, we, we've spoken about this, but, um, the emerging title is just kind of a laughable thing to me. Mm -hmm. So this is a, just for listeners who might not, um, might not be following this, this idea that emerging practices or emerging theorists have always been a thing in architecture. And it, it's often parodied now or satirized in a way that is skeptical of a practice that keeps its practitioners in a state of emergence almost throughout the entirety of their career. <laughs> like there's a kind of oppressiveness to, to um, be in a constant state of emergence and having never really arrived. Um, and so that the emerging theorist title is one that um, another meme account, Dan Cloyd Wright, have, have ironically um, claimed in, in their um, bio or profile information on Instagram. I mean, maybe we could talk a bit about Dan Cloyd Wright or accounts like it and what your relationship is to this broader ecosystem of meme culture and architecture. I mean, Dan Cloyd Wright, as many listeners will be aware of, is an anonymous um, account uh, that involves admin, I think, from around the world, um, but none of whom have um, uh, revealed themselves. Versus you, who are an individual and in a way are building um, a profile um, that will allow you to, I imagine at some point, leverage a certain kind of status you've cultivated and apply to other forms of practice in the future. But I'm, maybe that's a, that's a question to ask. Why for you is it important to claim ownership of the memes you make and uh, have them kind of stand for you as an individual? And how are you, what are you going to do, I guess, with the attention that that generates uh, on you as a person or as an individual practitioner? When I decided to experiment in meme space, the idea of being a part of academia, an insider to architecture, and yet being a kind of outsider, for lack of a better word, punk, um, seemed to me irresponsible. I found at the beginning of starting the research that a lot of the meme culture was coming from this place of anonymous, mocking, silly, funny, 
joking, but not serious. And so I wasn't sure how things would turn out. Um, but I knew that keeping myself anonymous would be for me felt an ir felt irresponsible because you could be you could be doing harm um by putting something down or by putting something out there that was seen as kind of cyberbullying or something right um now i i take responsibility for you know all of the bullshit that has uh, matriculated but i know that i knew then i knew then that if i was right about this hunch that i had about meme pages and about the discipline needing to kind of uh splinter a little bit shake loose a little bit take itself less seriously which is the mantra of extra office if i was right then there would be i would be followed by many many more meme pages who decide to participate in whatever way they feel comfortable and that that participation i could reflect on and so i see i see a lot of meme pages who were anonymous become unanonymous by deciding to say i'm a human behind this weird joke page you know people treat meme pages like their media outlets like hey make a meme about this or that like this takes work mm -hmm. this takes time like there's there's energy and effort there are um uh, you know, Danklin Wright posts something like, you know, 20 posts a day, like there's people behind those really putting effort into it, some of which just gets totally, uh, totally remediated by the, the algorithm. And, and like, you got to kind of be okay with that. It's, it's a sort of useless, the embodiment of a, of a kind of useless praxis that somehow generates a very important kind of feedback for people or very important messages for people. And there's, there's value. There's so much value in doing that. The way in which I have decided to utilize and focus all that attention is to, um, you know, build those communities, share those other pages, support those other meme pages, um, create a kind of uh and establish a kind of new value system and, and for what architecture wants to become or how architecture on a discourse can be thought of uh, meme culture can sort of bottom up uh, uh create and establish value systems for itself that mm. it didn't used to before and what i hope to do is establish through through the extra office establish some new new types of media channels where people are more um are are just uh, taking themselves less seriously when they talk about architecture's relationship to the world so you're mentioning extra office and i'm just conscious we haven't actually um talked about that yet or what what extra office is and this is this is the title of your um, practice which i'm just going to call up the website now so i can describe it to listeners is 
I may be wrong on my terminology, but like maybe a web 1.0 aesthetic, there's like a starry background with rainbow um, um, serif text that says extra office. And it's actually, the front page is a merch page. You're selling t-shirts and mugs um, and baby clothes. Uh, they all have kind of architectural meme slogans on them. One of my favorites is a t-shirt that just says, this building sucks. Um, <laughs> you're also offering up your services as a desk critic to architectural students. And just seeing this um, makes me realize like how entrepreneurial your practice is and how in a way you are um, extending your efforts out in so many different directions here trying to find, I don't know, some traction or a specific route. And I know the last time we spoke, um, it sounded like you were feeling more pressure to start to double down on a specific avenue. And I wondered if you could talk more about what direction your work is going in now, keeping in mind that in addition to extra office, you also have a, a practice with your partner, Kristen Mims, called Miscellaneous, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so just to kind of list, I think for myself, it's helpful to kind of list all of these efforts. So you're teaching at Kent State University. You run a popular architecture meme page. You have this practice called Extra Office, which is a kind of banner, I guess, for the work you do across different mediums. You have this practice um, making real architecture projects called MISC Partners. So where, <laughs> I mean, why why I'm, I'm listing this all out is because I feel like this condition is so familiar mm -hmm. that I feel like I know a lot of people who uh, have somehow found themselves diversifying, you know, coming out of architecture practice or out of their education in architecture and now applying their skills and expertise on many different tracks simultaneously. And I'm just curious for you whether that's sustainable in the long run or whether or not you are now starting to try and um, narrow your focus. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, I, I totally echo the sentiment where it feels like everyone in our generation has like five different things we're all doing at the same time. We've got, we've got some clunky website we built a few years ago that has like our services on there. If in case our uh, crazy uncle ever wants their house drawn <laughs> or something. And then we've got the, you know, the hopeful kind of, entrepreneurial avenues, we've got uh, side hustles. And um, I think that the I think that the current generation above us, older generation has a harder time has a has a really difficult time understanding just what it's like to participate in the economic state of like, of g the gig economy, and how just uh, trudging it can feel um and how most of us 
who have side hustles are are allowed to do so because of our you know a particular kind of economic situation right there are those among our generation who who, who really can't afford to to do that because they're like oh, no, I know I need a job like I've got a I've got a kid right like or I've got I've got you know I, I don't have the time or space to just like be screwing around with this stuff though I'd like to say that at first but I myself have had a lot of what do they call it oh I lost the the word um Irons in the fire. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I was like, what is it? I was like, wait, <laughs> stoking a, what torches in the fire? I'm like, it's like too analog a reference. It's it's somehow like hard to access <laughs> right. now. <laughs> right. Too hard. Too analog a reference. Yes. Um. Uh, and and trying to figure out just exactly what or how I wanted to participate with architecture culture and what I have to offer and how to make what I have to offer um, work for me. Um, and so basically I'm focusing in on the extra office itself as uh, a media production platform and a um, extra institutional space to find and build knowledge. Um, and so I'm looking at running some summer courses and creating um, interviews and uh, um, content on TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and um, really doubling down on becoming a, a media practice as a, as a form, uh, not only to support different types of criticism in architecture because i think that the best place to find the best place to find support is through find through audience building for particular ideas and and that if that audience wants and feels like these these media platforms are important then then it'll be audience supported and so um the hope is that uh, by really focusing on um, the production of of content and ideas, I can um, and and consistent uh, consistent content that I can um, uh, support the endeavor to build a a new way of of thinking about architecture or a new. Um, by, by thinking about platforms rather than thinking about architecture itself. Um, one last question I had was around this book that you often cite as a big influence for you called Infinite Game or The Infinite Game. It was published in 1986 by the religious scholar James P. Carse. And just the title alone to me sounds like an apt description for the kind of criticism that you engage in, where everything is available for critique. Um, like I was saying before, regardless of um, whether it's highbrow or lowbrow, whether it's within or outside of kind of the common conception of what constitutes architecture, you can take this intense delight in critiquing 
um, the world we live in now in a way that's playful and does feel infinite. And I just wonder, what is the significance of that book to you? And how is it informing the work you're going to do moving forward? Mm. Um, the book starts out with a very provocative sentence. It says, there are at least two types of games. Um, finite games are games which are meant to be ended, and infinite games are games in which the goal is to keep the game going. Um, and you find that if you think about a lot of what you produce under these terms, um, you think about the fact that not all games are games that you're trying to win, but games that you're trying to participate in as a player. Architecture is an infinite game, right? Where we're constantly uh, 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 producing, and some of this comes, well, a, a lot of it comes from books. Some of it comes from interviews with with uh, people and, and theorists who I've had uh, a great deal of luck, who I've been able to spend a lot of time around. Um, Jeff Kipnis, Aaron Betsky, uh, David Rue, um, people at SciArc, people at um, outside of uh, people at this, the School of Architecture Taliesin, where I've, you know, really gained a lot of insight into how the the infinite game of architecture has always been there. It's just not made it into the books because that was the secret, right? Um, but the the world is full of holes. It's full of cameras. It's full of moments. And I say we just be honest about those moments and create a, a, a new formulation of what it means to participate in this infinite game together, um, mm. and and how we how we share and and uh, uplift each other on those platforms is really important to me. Mm. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Oh hell yeah. You're like the you dude, Matthew. You're like um. Sorry, I'm like off the cuff here, but like, you're an amazing interviewer. <laughs> Thank you. That's really nice to hear. That's a serious skill. It takes skill, and like I've never felt so seen in a way that I'm like totally shocked by. Um, <laughs> listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Ryan Skavnicki. Thanks as always to Scandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.